This the last couple months, you know, we're working through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And, uh, you know, Mark's kind of one of those uh, books that, you know, we, we, we blaze through the Gospels. But, you know, I got to thinking when, uh, when Steve mentioned this is what was on the agenda, that uh, I don't think I've ever worked systematically through the book of Mark, uh, all the other gospels, but not that one. And this has been this has been a fun experience for me. But what's jumped out at me, and what I think is really important uh, for us to grab a hold of this morning, is that God does nothing by chance. He is systematic. He there's nothing random. Everything he does, he does by design. When man lost knowledge of God in the garden, God began to progressively reveal himself back to man. And he did so in a certain way. He began to reveal who he was. He began to reveal to man man's problem, and he began to reveal to man his solution culminating in what we're going to celebrate here in, in a couple months, the advent of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. All the way through the Old Testament, God progressively brought us to the point where he was going to, as a man, appear on this earth. And for 30 years, Jesus walked this planet as a uh, as a child, as a teen, uh, as a young man who was a carpenter. And now what we've been looking at in this, uh, pass in this uh, gospel is the onset of his ministry, his purpose for coming, the, the plan for his coming. And I don't want you to miss that he is doing things the way they needed to be done. This wasn't random. It wasn't just, well, I'll go here and see what happens. He went where he was led to go by the Holy Spirit, and he said what he said by uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so there's an order and there's a plan to what he's doing. And in what we're going to look at here this morning in Mark chapter, and Jesus is already in serious trouble. Okay, He has already done enough in the revelation of who he is as a person. He's already revealed who he is by his power. And he's already revealed his plan. And this is going to get him in this passage that we're looking at uh, today. He is going to draw a line in the sand and say you're on one side or you're on the other. Now, to get here, we have to kind of go back and review a little bit. Remember, uh, right away, as far as his personhood, it began to be revealed who he was as God, as a man. 
happened right away. We looked at the baptism of Jesus where the Father, the Father of God, he, the, the Father God spoke, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So right away, his person is established, right at the onset. We've seen throughout in various places, especially uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 24, and Mark 2, 11, the demons gave testimony of who Jesus was. They cried out, you are the Son of God. So you have the Father and you have even the demonic realm giving credence to his claim of being the Son of God. But even himself, he gave testimony of himself. Remember in Mark chapter uh, 2, verse 10, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Well, remember what a, what a, uh, a rise that caused? Because they all knew no one could forgive sins but God. No one. But he said, so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, arise, take up your pallet and walk to the paralytic. And he got up and walked. In other words, Jesus was saying, you are right. God alone can forgive sin, but so that you know who I am, check this out. Take up your pallet and walk. And he did. Further on, last week, Bill read portion where he revealed himself as the bridegroom. Israel had long awaited for the bridegroom, the Messiah, the Savior, the covering, the protector. Jesus said he was the bridegroom when questioned as to why John's disciples fasted and his did not. And he said, why do you fast when the bridegroom is with you? So Jesus himself is declaring I am who I claim I am. So he established his personhood. His power, he showed that he had power over sickness in Mark chapter 1 when he raised Peter's uh, mother-in-law from, from uh, the sick bed. Uh, said that he, would, he was healing many. All who were coming to him for, for healing. He had power over disease. He healed the leper cleansed him of, of, of his leprosy, unheard of in those days. He had power over deformity. The paralytic he raised, the withered hand, the guy with the withered hand last week that Bill looked at, he, uh, he healed the man uh, of his withered hand. He had power over everything, even death. He certainly dis declared his power over the demons as he as he preached in the synagogues and, and, and he, he knew of their presence. They were firmly entrenched in, in, in the, the synagogues and the people that were present. And he would cast them out. And they had to respond to him. So his power, he's demonstrated that power that could only be coming from God. He revealed his plan Remember, last two weeks ago, I talked about Levi, who became Matthew. He was a tax collector, the scum of the earth. 
as far as the Jews were concerned. The lowest of the low, a Jewish tax collector collecting taxes for Rome. The bottom of the barrel. And we saw how Jesus uh, not only conversed with him, uh, told him to follow him, but he went to his house and he ate with him, and not just him, but with many tax collectors and sinners. Those that the Jews would not even come near. Certainly not share a meal with. So he revealed his plan to call sinners to repentance. To bring about salvation to the sinner. That was his plan. But part of his plan was to reveal the false teachers. The false teachers were the Pharisees. They were the ones who the nation of Israel held responsible for the teaching of God. And they had perverted it. They had twisted it around to gain advantage. They lorded their position over people. And one of the ways they did so was uh, by, uh, by monitoring, by policing the Sabbath. And the, the Sabbath, of course, was the day of rest. And so these guys were the ones who defined rest. They were the ones who, who determined what was labor and what was not, what was lawful and what was not. And Jesus said of them that they bound up heavy burdens and laid it on the backs of people, yet they would not lift a finger to help. They were corrupt. And Jesus went right after these guys. Now remember, this is early in his ministry. He, he, didn't, he didn't just skirt these guys. He didn't ignore them. He went after them. And the way he went after them was he began to, to bump up against their religious system. And he picked the Sabbath because it was so easy to do. Remember, they were walking in uh, Mark chapter 2. They were walking through the grain fields, he and his disciples. And they were picking the heads of grain off, you know, off and, and eating the grain. And the Pharisees went ballistic because how can you do that on the Sabbath? Oh, you can eat on the Sabbath. But they had defined what work was. And they defined that there is no threshing on the Sabbath. Which meant, and, and they accused them of being in the wrong by threshing because as they picked the heads of grain, they would rub it between their hands to get the chaff off of the wheat or, or the, the barley, and, and they would eat the, the grain, and they called that threshing. They had defined it down to where it was impossible. And part of the reason was they wanted to just find people guilty all the time because part of it was a monetary gain for them because there was penance for breaking the law. They were harsh taskmasters. And we saw last week that there was the man with the withered hand that was there in the Sabbath or in the uh, synagogue and it was the Sabbath and Jesus healed him. Now, there was no law against healing on the Sabbath. Why? Because there had never been a healer. No one had healed before. 
you could not help on the Sabbath. So this fell under the help category. But remember what happened was Jesus commanded the man with the withered hand to stick out his hand, and it was healed. How much work was involved? Nothing. He didn't even touch him. There was no labor, none whatsoever. There was restoration, complete restoration. And he did it on the Sabbath. Why did he pick the Sabbath? Because he was going after the religious rulers who were binding these heavy burdens, the law, the thou shalt, thou shalt not on the people. And so Jesus set himself against those guys right away because he said, you're going to find my plan is different. And he explained that plan. It was to bring about a new covenant. Last week, we read about the pouring new wine into old wineskins. Well, you don't do that. I'm not that big on making wine. I don't know how, but I know in the fermentation process, there's gases that are released and whatnot. So if you pour new wine into an old wineskin, it's going to expand and it's going to burst that wineskin and then everything's going to spill out. He's referencing the change of covenants. He was bringing something new, a new covenant, and he referred to it as the Sabbath rest. He was bringing rest to his people. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will bring you rest. What is rest? Well, rest is what he did his whole life on earth. Oh, he did a lot of things, but he gave testimony that it was not him doing it, but the Father doing it through him. It was not his words that, were, that he spoke. It was the Father's words. It was, he said, the works that I do, they're not mine. I only do what my Father, the works, these works that I do, they're my Father at work. He was resting. He ceased from his labor and allowed the Holy Spirit of God to labor through him. In Hebrews, it's defined Christianity today in the new covenant is defined as the Sabbath rest, where we cease from our labor but make ourselves available to God for his, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is our reasonable service of worship. That's rest. We don't work for our salvation. We don't work for, for God's approval. We know we have it, so we rest, which makes us available to God to be used. And you know what? We end up working, but not us, but Christ in us. The rest is not ceasing from the labor like the Pharisees were, were uh, proclaiming. Resting is ceasing from our labor, the labor of our flesh, being led by the Holy Spirit for good works. So, Jesus had revealed his plan. We find in the first part of uh, Mark chapter 3, also just ahead of where we're going to jump in today, I'm going to skip this part for the, version of, for the purpose of... Uh, uh, getting you home to watch football, I guess. But uh, uh, the calling of the 12 apostles. 
it'd be good for you to read that. It's uh, certainly not random, but what he did was he called his 12 apostles, uh, and he was going to be giving them authority, the authority that he had, which would further then proclaim his deity, his ability to even share his authority with others. And so they're named there in uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. But where we're going to begin today is in chapter 3, verse 20. Kind of a long runway, but uh, stick with me. We'll get there. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but, it, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about though at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Father, we just pray that you would now speak to us as to the, the word that you have given us the testimony that you have given us of yourself. And so, Father, we just ask now that you would cancel Satan's assignment against us, that we would be able to clearly heal, hear. Uh, I pray that you would just give me the words to communicate your mind, and we'll trust you for that. Amen. So here we have Jesus returning back to Capernaum. Now, when it says, when he came home, uh, it's referring to Capernaum because that's where he had been lodged. That's where he had been staying. That was kind of the base of his ministry. He had been working in the region of Galilee there. And so coming, coming back to Capernaum, which is where he had, he had already healed a lot of people. He had already cast out a lot of demons. Uh, it's where he, he had uh, uh, helped the, the paralytic, had healed the paralytic. So he had gone out preaching in the synagogues around and then came back. And it says that his, his kinsmen uh, heard of it. Now, this is his mother and his brothers, okay? Probably his sisters, too. They're just not mentioned. But remember, Jesus did have half-brothers and half-sisters. 
but Mary, his mother, was in a dilemma here because she knew who Jesus was. She knew what his claims were. Remember, we're going to celebrate this in a couple months here where the Spirit of God appeared to her and then came upon her and she conceived and bore a son. She knew she had known no man, so she knew this Jesus, her son, was supernatural. But try convincing a bunch of brothers that. You know, imagine what it would have been like being raised in the same home of a perfect kid. A kid who knew everything. A kid who never got in trouble. If he ever got in trouble, it was for always being good, always being right. The brothers had a hard time believing. I mean, imagine if your brother said he's God. You know, uh, it'd be a tough one to swallow, and certainly it was for them too. So now they hear about all the claims he's making of being God, of being the Son of God, and they're going, I shared a room with him. How can he be God? They think he's lost his mind. They, they think he's off his rocker. They're probably concerned about him because he's creating such a stir that, that they fear for him. It says that they came, and the word used there literally means to seize him. They were going to take him into custody. They were going to seize him and get him out of there. And we find at the end of that passage that they did. They showed up there to do that very thing. And Jesus makes a profound statement. He's not dissing his family here. And we find in, in the book of Acts that all of his family came to believe. Uh, but at that time, they didn't. They weren't believers, except for his mother, of course. But he's looking at those around him, and he's saying, you know what? You guys, you got to understand something. There's a physical relationship and there's a spiritual relationship. I'm of the spiritual relationship. It doesn't matter if you're related to me or not in the physical. That is going to get you nothing. But what will get you everything is being related to me spiritually. Those who believe, they are my kinsmen. They are my brothers. He wasn't dissing his family. He's just saying, I'm sticking with what I'm telling you. These guys don't believe, but those who believe, you are my brothers. Spiritually. Now back up to verse 22. There was this other group, the scribes. The scribes, of course, were... Uh, in the, in the same place as the Pharisees as far as their, uh, their unbelief, their fear of their place being taken, their job security was on the line. We saw in, in chapter 3 uh, that they had already come, uh, where is that, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. 
these guys were worried. The Herodians, they were to the, the Pharisees like the Republicans are to the Democrats. They didn't agree. They didn't like each other. They didn't, they didn't hang out together. I realize you guys probably hang out, but, uh, but they, they never were in agreement on anything. But yet this is such a serious matter that they're now in agreement. That in itself seemed like an act of God. They should have figured, oh, this guy is uniting even us. Wow, pretty amazing. But what we find here is now they've called the heavyweights, the scribes from Jerusalem. The word had gotten back to Jerusalem that this guy was turning their world upside down and they better do something about it. And they had no explanation. How do you deny a paralytic getting up and walking? How do you deny a man's hand suddenly being restored? How do you deny the sick being made well and the, and the demonically possessed being freed? How do you describe the supernatural? They had to come up with a solution. They knew that there was only two answers, two possibilities. Because of his supernatural ability, he was either of the devil or he was of God. They, of course, were out to discredit him, out to, out to uh, throw suspicion on him. And they come and they say, he's from, he is possessed by Beelzebul. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebul was a name for Satan uh, given by the Jews. Okay? It came from the Canaanite god who uh, their god that they worshipped was Beelzebub, which uh, means uh, lord of the high places. And uh, they put a spin on it, mockingly, the Jews did, and, and called Satan Beelzebul, which means lord of the dung or Lord of the Flies. And so they say he's, he's getting his authority and his power from Satan himself. So Jesus says to him, hey, you guys, come here. I would have loved to have seen this conversation. Would have loved to have been a part of this conversation. He, he called him to himself and said, hey, guys, come here. Come here. Consider this. And first of all, he, uh, he gives them an axiom, okay? Uh, you know, two axioms here, one negative, one positive. Uh, and he, he basically starts off with appealing to their logic and, and, and revealing the impossibility of it. He's saying, you know, listen, how can Satan cast out Satan? Is not a kingdom divided against itself? Will not that kingdom fall? A house, if it's divided against itself, will not that house fall? Come on, you guys, you know this. You know, if, 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 if I am doing Satan's work, then I'm working against Satan. If my power is from Satan, why would Satan do that? 
He's firmly entrenched in these synagogues, in the people that are sitting in the pews. He said, why, you know, basically they were accusing him of, of, of casting out these demons. Well, where were the demons? They were in the people that were in the synagogue, exactly where Satan wanted them. Why would he now send them out? He says, he wouldn't. Then he flips it around and he says, so it would really be foolish and really stupid and really impossible for my works to be of Satan. So consider this. He says, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. He's saying, come over here on the other side, guys, and consider this. If you're going to rob, if you're going to go in and plunder a strong man's house, the only way you're going to get it done is to first bind the strong man, and then you can plunder his house. So, being God, because we know only God can bind the strong man Satan and plunder his house, thwart his works, then guess who I am? I must be God. Then he makes a very serious statement. He draws that line deeply and clearly in the sand. And he says, be careful what you're doing. Because here's the deal. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter. In everything that man does, in his ignorance, in the foolishness, in the lust of his flesh, in his boastful pride of life, in all of the things man does in total ignorance, even speaking against God, those will be forgiven him. And of course, we know that happened on the cross when he who knew no sin became our sin for us. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to John chapter 16 or you can I'll read it to you starting in verse 7 but I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper the Holy Spirit will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you and he when he speaking of the Holy Spirit comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. Remember I talked a couple weeks ago about how Levi... He knew. I mean, the, everybody told him he was scum. He knew. He, he, had, he, had, he was a Jew. 
He had been raised in the synagogues. He knew what he was doing was against God. He knew that he was so far removed from God by virtue of the law, by the works of the law, he was never going to make it. And he had regretted his life choice, I'm sure. And he had been thinking about it. He had seen Jesus around. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking by. And you know the Holy Spirit had been working on Levi because all Jesus had to say was, follow me, and boom, up he was gone. Leaving behind him everything. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He works on people, convicting them of their sin convicting them of judgment that's coming if they don't do anything about their sin. The law was given to condemn people, to show them that, that they were on the other side, to clearly reveal that they had screwed up. It didn't, wasn't given to save people or to make them better. The law was given to reveal, them, to, reveal to them how bad they were and how inept they were at keeping it but bringing about a conviction of the Holy Spirit that they needed a Savior. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Convicts people of their need of a Savior. And whatever sin they, they commit is, is forgivable if they look to Jesus as their Savior. But he says there is one that is not forgivable. And that is a constant rejecting of the work of the Holy Spirit bringing about that conviction and revealing Jesus Christ is Lord. Because there are people on this planet who are walking in complete defiance of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life and saying, I don't believe God. I don't want to be with God. I'm God myself. I don't need a Savior. I don't want to be with God. And if they die in that condition, that is the sin that is unpardonable because they did not receive their Savior. They declared they had no need of God. And God will give them their choice. He will allow them to experience the consequences of that cho choice, which is being alienated from the Spirit of God, the bread of life, the fountain of living water, the light of the world. They will live in utter darkness. They will, they will thirst forever. They will hunger forever. And they will forever, all of eternity, be separated from the one true, living, good God because of their choice. That's what it is. This passage messes with people's heads. People fear that they've come to Christ and then can lose their salvation by virtue of some blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that they're not even sure what it is, but they're fearful that they've done it. And there will be people that preach that. And you know what it install, instills in a person? Fear. Now, perfect love casts out fear. Fear and faith are mutually exclusive. We're told to walk by faith, not by sight. 
We're told to put on the helmet of salvation. That's what we're given in, in Ephesians chapter 6, in the armor of the believer, the helmet of salvation. Why the helmet? Because that's where the attacks come. The enemy knows if he can get you believing that somehow you screwed up and are, are now alienated from God, even though you had made a proclamation of receiving Christ as your Savior, he knows he can get you tied back to the law and he can get you absolutely down in the dirt condemning yourself and being totally unusable by God. Totally. Perfect love casts out fear. In 1 John, we're told this. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of Jesus that you might know that you have eternal life. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. Eternal life by its very definition means it never ends, which means if you could now do something that would end it, that wasn't eternal and this, this whole thing is a lie. But it's not. He drew the line in the sand saying, declare which side you are on. Do you believe me? Do you believe me because of what I've told you? Do you believe me by what you've seen? Do you believe me by what I've done? Or are you going to line up with these guys who are going to say that conviction you're receiving is from the devil. There's only, we're told, a narrow road. There's a narrow path. And it's not works. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. One man, one Savior, and his name is Jesus. He's declared it right from the get-go because all the rest of his ministry, he's parting the way. Which side will you be on? And you remember at the end, out of fear, out of unbelief, a lot of people appeared to jump to the other side, but when they saw him raised, they were saved. Are you saved? Have you responded to the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin? If you have, and you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you're in his kingdom. You are his brother. Put it to rest, and now turn to that brother and acknowledge his presence within you, and you, walking with him, will experience the abundant life for all of eternity. If you haven't, please do that before you leave here. Please. If the Holy Spirit's tugging at you even now, respond to him. Respond to him. Just say yes 
to his invitation of a relationship with him for all of eternity. If you're sitting here and you're worried whether you're in or whether you're out, you've prayed to receive Jesus, but now you're not sure because you've done something and you keep doing something, so certainly I must not be saying, put that to rest today too. It's done. It's over. It is finished. You have eternal life. Don't let Satan cripple you from thinking you're unfit or unqualified to be used of God because that's why he does it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your assurance. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for coming as a man to reveal what a man looks like, how a man responds, how a man lives. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit who you've sent to indwell us, to empower us, Father, I just pray that if there's anybody here that is questioning, that they would have that question answered before they leave here. All they need to do is respond to you, and I pray that they do. So, Father, thank you for this beautiful day and our opportunity here on this earth to walk with you. We praise you for it. Tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free and my chains are undone. Your presence, Lord. Stand and sing this with us. Thank Angie and Tom for that song. I also want to thank uh, Pat for that great message. Um, I'm Bob. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And if you have a decision that you've made or a fear that maybe you have, come forward and pray. We'll pray for you. If there's something going on in your life that uh, needs some extra prayer and you want some people to come alongside of you, I want to offer that to you as well. In the meantime, let's pray together. Mighty God and Father, thank you.
God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. And I just pray that uh, as we go our ways, that you'll keep us safe until we return again. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Sing the chorus one more time if you want. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the Bless you guys.